Would you open God's precious holy word to John chapter 7? And we will be in verses 14 through 24. And as you go there, I want to ask the elders to briefly meet with me just at the close of the service here at the front. It won't take a minute. So just uh, meet with me then, all right? From this passage, I want to bring you a message that I call the mighty word of Christ. Christ Jesus of Nazareth. In the setting of the day when he came to minister and finally die for our sin. Was placed in a culture and in a religion that was man-made but born from a misconstrued view of the Old Testament in general and the law specifically. Jesus would have had a, a Galilean accent. He would pretty much look like anyone else. He dressed like everyone in his day. The Bible tells us both both the prophet and then the exclamation of the Pharisees regarding his appearance in the New Testament, that there would be nothing particularly overwhelming about his appearance when he came as a man, the humble son of a carpenter. And yet, the son of God Once baptized by John the Baptist, then the Holy Spirit descended upon him. And so Christ now begins his ministry as the Son of Man, the Son of God. Performing the miracles, we've talked about this. We have a good grip of, of the way Christ performed miracles. Proving his deity, but making outstanding claims. He claimed to be the eternal son of God. He called God his father, which places him in eternity and into the same essence of God Almighty, the Godhead. He elevates himself above the prophets, above the patriarchs, above the temple, above the Sabbath. He does not deny that he is God. And he tells them that they must partake of him to have life. He told them that he was before Abraham. He assumed, he didn't assume it. He placed himself in his 
presence and in his teaching and in his debates with the Pharisees as the creator, he also taught them that he would, is the judge. He forgave sins. He raised the dead. He told people that life could only be found in him and that he was the only way of salvation. There were other things that he claimed that you could add to this. But by the time we get here to John chapter 7 and verse 14, the leader of the Jews were livid with anger and hatred toward Jesus. So much so that, of course, they sought to kill him. And we've already seen that a couple of times written in John's gospel. They were conspiring to kill Jesus. So during this feast of the tabernacles, they were looking for Jesus because all of the males of the Jews were to be there, who were over 30, were to be there as one of the feasts required to attend by the Jewish men. He came secretly. He knew their hearts. He knew they were seeking to kill him. But what did he say? He said, it is not my time. It's not my time yet to be fulfilled for these things to be fulfilled. It is not my time. Now, in John 17, when we get to the passion of the Christ and he is kneeling in prayer, he says, my hour has come. But it's not yet here. Now, he's just literally months from the cross. So we saw then the pinnacle of his ministry when he fed the multitude and the multitudes came. And with probably the greatest crowd he had ever assembled, he gave them the deepest truth. You cannot live without me. I am the bread of life. You cannot see heaven. You will not live forever unless you partake of me. Now, when Jesus said that, he proclaimed that all of their law and their righteous, so-called righteous deeds and behavior and code of ethics and whatever was useless for their salvation. And it became distasteful to the multitudes, mostly many of his disciples who heard him say, you must drink my blood and eat my flesh. The essence of who I am, you must partake of or you cannot be saved. That was, that was so distasteful. Most of them left him and they rejected him. And they had rejected his teaching. And so when we get to John 7, he only has, he only has his really, his truest disciples. He comes secretly then into Jerusalem and the divide is clear. Either Christ is your savior and the only way for you to go to heaven or you have rejected that claim completely. It's no middle ground there. So then these seven months come here where the crowds have left for the most part and 
for the rest of the, the, the rest of John, it's mostly the intensification of the teaching of Jesus to his true disciples. And so his teaching is about the kingdom, what it means. It's about sin and righteousness and salvation. It is about how he is the only way to salvation and that he's going to die. But he will be raised up again on the third day. The teaching of the foundation of the Christian faith is laid now layer upon layer in the teachings of Christ. The mighty word of Christ. Paul writes that the gospel will always have a result. The preaching of the Bible, the teaching of the word of God will never leave the crowd in a neutral zone. You will walk away with your lostness confirmed or your salvation affirmed and the warmth of the promise of eternal life glowing even greater in your soul. Never leaves people the same. When we go through this passage today, you will not be left the same. And we can say that for every time we come together and study the Word of God. This Word today will either drive you further away, and only God knows, or draw you more closely in. And only those who have been born from above can receive and grow in the Word of God. This is why it's the mighty word of Christ. Only those whom God has called to himself can receive, accept, understand, and believe this word. Those who are outside only become more confused, hardened, less interested and more prone than before to happily walk away from it and reject it. It is seen here in what we study today, the mighty word of Christ. There are three things that are spoken of here Which the, to which the believer should take heart, in which the believer should take heart. The first one is this. I am enlightened by his life-changing word. I would have never known the mess that I was in. I would never have had the divine mirror placed in front of me and be forced to own up to what a wicked man that I am. 
if not for the life-changing word of Christ. In my fallen state, it would be my natural human tendency to see myself as good, to compare myself with others, carefully selecting those whom I thought were worse than me, to declare myself good, if not for the word of Christ. I am enlightened to his life-changing word. And I can also say I am enlightened in his life-changing word. Let's look at it here. Now, also being in the middle of the feast, okay, here's the deal. This thing lasts seven days and Christ told his brothers that he wouldn't go with them, but he comes in secretly and now it's the middle of the week. The big crowd is there and Christ begins to teach. Jesus went up into the temple and was teaching. A very common thing for the rabbis. This is why so many people would call Jesus rabbi because he was teaching them. Teaching them as we've already seen about the kingdom, the nature of the kingdom and those who will be in the kingdom. What salvation really is, what righteousness in God's sight really is, what sinners we are. And how he tells them that he has come to make this burden light for them, to lift it off of them. That he's the way, the truth, and the life. No one's going to come to the Father but through him. He is the only way. He is the bread of life. We know what he's teaching in the temple. Then the Jews, now this would be the general crowd of Jews who had assembled to listen to him teach. They knew that he was a miracle worker. That part of his ministry is greatly diminishing at this point, but of course, by eternal design, because now it's time for the people to know the one who has performed these miracles is your savior, if you would be saved. The Jews were marveling or they were admiring his teaching, saying, how does he know the scriptures Having never studied. Now the scriptures are alive. They have divine life. That's in the book of Hebrews. That the word of God lives. And it divides the soul from the spirit. It does something that nothing else can do. When applied by the Holy Spirit, it divides the soul from the spirit. Now the word incarnate is teaching the word. There is no greater teacher, no higher authority. He gave the word. He gives the word. He is the word. They are listening to the one who is the author of the word. And they admire his teaching. Here is a truth of the Bible. 
We've already studied how Jesus said, if the Father doesn't draw you, you won't come. John, the previous chapter, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And I will never cast him out. I've come to do the will of the one who has sent me. This is his will that of all he gives me, I'll raise him up at the last day and I'll not lose a single one of them. Not a single one of them. He who looks at the Son and believes has life. So, here is the drawing power of God to those whom he would save, the word of Christ. Those who are drawn by the Father are melted by the word. The heart of stone is broken, it is shattered. The coldness disappears. The pride is knocked down. And the prideful man drops into humility and understands that he's helpless without a savior. He cannot stand before God on his own and be saved. He needs the savior, the one whom the father has sent, who came from heaven. This is what happens to those who are drawn to Christ. It may be just a part of a scripture. I remember, you've heard me say it before, in the Revelation chapter 3, this is the word that knocked me down as a 10-year-old boy. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. I, my daddy was a preacher, grew up under his preaching. He was a hard preacher. He would pound the pulpit with his fists and get loud. I've told you about that little kid when I was 16. I took him to church. He was our next door neighbor. He'd never been to church before. And he asked me, he said, what is that man arguing about? <laughs> that was a good question. But for all that I'd heard him preach all of my life, I was nearly 11 years old until it was my mother as my Sunday school teacher who put up a flannel graph with that scripture and a depiction of Jesus knocking on a door. That scripture on that day, according to the will and purpose of God, in the life of that little boy is what stripped away his pride and took away of what he thought he knew about being saved and left him with nothing but the, but the presence of a promising Savior who said, if you'll open this door, I will come in. It may be just a simple verse, but oh, what he does from then with his word you become a disciple of Christ, a learner, and you never exhaust the riches of his grace or his word. Never. I, I, I committed my life 
to his word, the study of it, the pursuit of understanding it and the teaching of it and the proclamation of it. 50 years ago, just about. And I've had pressures from churches to do other things and they're only 24 hours in a day and a man is only going to live so long. And I was, I was compelled by the Holy Spirit of God to make other people mad to choose the time to study the word. I don't know how I've lasted this long in the pastorate. But it was never a no-brainer for me what was priority in my life which was the word of God. Herman Cobb, my father in the ministry, said to me one time when I was facing a difficult situation as a younger pastor, he said, Charles, the people just need to be taught. He wrote in a set of books that he gave me in the front page of the first volume. Always be true to the word of God and the God of the word will always be true to you. And I have found that to be true in my life. The word of Christ. Because it is something special to the believer. It is meaningless to the unbeliever. It's because they don't have the Holy Spirit. They've not been born again. They have no spiritual life. They don't understand. They can't help themselves. They don't know. I've become far more understanding in my later years as a disciple of Christ regarding those who would spit on his word and reject it and curse him and do those things. They can't help it. You know that old song that had a phrase in it where this, I don't know, I can't remember the Probably a dumb illustration, but I'm this far into it. I may as well go ahead with it. Some kind of song where this woman nurtured back to health, some kind of snake, and he bit her and she died. You knew I was a snake when you took me in. The nature of man unsaved, undrawn to the Father. Void of rebirth and regeneration is in his natural state and in that natural state he cannot understand the word of God. No wonder there's such an unmitigated attack against it and yet they cannot undo it, unprove it and they can't stop it from being published or preached or taught. It will not happen. Because it has this profound effect of strengthening the saved and condemning the lost. It's fairly simple. And so we proclaim it. God uses it as he sees fit. And he draws those whom he would. I don't know who they are. That's not my job. It's to teach it and to preach it. And as disciples of Christ, it is the responsibility of all of us to grow in this word. To grow in the, Peter says, to grow in the knowledge. To grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I have, 
I have a far greater reverence and appreciation for grace than I did even when I was a 10-year-old boy and I was saved. But the longer you live, And the more you have to walk in this mortal body. And the more you have to struggle with yourself. In this body. Of decay. And you fight the thoughts that come. And you fight the desires that are so natural. And you pull the word of God out like a sword and you start fighting and slashing. It's two-edged. It goes this way and it goes that way. The farther along you go, the more you realize what a great sinner you are. And nothing but grace can save you. I'll tell you, the Word of God, you'll grow in the knowledge, you'll grow in grace. And in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, it's all about him. Here they were marveling and saying, he's never studied. That's because they're applying a man-made standard to a divine thing. The greatest prophets in the Bible were unlearned. Number two, his word draws the believer to the will of the Father. I could stand up even today. I don't know. I don't know. You may, I'd have to look and take, I'd have to do a roll call in my brain. So I'm not going to try to look around and see, oh, I don't know that person. I'll be saved a lot. Look, I'm going to preach to all of you, knowing this one thing. That the word will draw the one whom the father will draw to himself. The word has that power. I don't have that power. I could entertain you. I could promise, you know, we could take $20 bills and say, if you'll come Sunday, somebody will have a $20 bill. Maybe that's not, maybe a $100 bill these days. $100 bill. Somebody, some lucky person going to. Sit and right under there, tape to your bottom of your bottom. <laughs> a hundred, I, we can do all kinds of things. But only the Father can draw us, and that is through His Word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. The great, powerful Word of Christ. His Word draws the believer to the will of the Father. This is how you can know that you're saved. Have you been drawn to Christ? Have you been made to realize that you cannot save yourself, that you are a sinner, lost and helpless? And then on a particular day, in a particular way, God drew you to himself through Christ. Well, that's how you can know. Here's what Christ says. Therefore, Jesus answered them and said... My teaching is not of myself, but of the one having sent me. If anyone desires to do his will, 
He will know concerning the teaching, whether it is from God or I speak from myself. When a person is born again, when he is born anew from above, when the word of God at the appropriate moment, according to the design and purpose of God, pierces the tomb that is the heart of the unbeliever and brings forth new life, you'll know that God spoke to you through his word. You'll know it. If you're confused about it, this is why the Bible says that the word of God divides the soul from the spirit. Some people in confusion will respond maybe in some kind of soulish way by the soul. That's the emotion. That's still the man. That's, that's not, a, but the spirit it's not the soul that's born again. It's the spirit that's born again. Spiritual rebirth. That awakens us to a new life, a spiritual life, and you'll know it. You'll know it because, let me tell you, you won't live a perfect life. You'll sin again somewhere. Maybe many somewheres and many agains. <laughs> but here's what happens to the person who's been born again. He becomes ashamed and broken and grieved because he sinned. That's because you belong to the Father. People who are not born again, they don't care. They try to cover it up. They try to hide it. They get away from it. They don't want to confess it. They'll blame other people with it, all this kind of thing. If anyone desires to do his will, he will know concerning the teaching. Whether it's from God or I speak from myself. A false teacher seeks to glorify himself. His name is the name that's on the sign. It's the glitter is all about him. But if it's the will of the father, we see the son as having been sent by the father who draws us to himself, who gives his son to redeem us so that in his son we can be saved and the Father is glorified into the ages of the ages of the ages. Jesus said, I did not come to do my will. I came to do the will of the one who sent me. So, it is this word of Christ that draws me to the will of the Father. What is it that causes me to want to be saved? The will of the Father. You see, until salvation, 
Paul writes that we are slaves to sin. Enslaved. We, we think when, before we become to Christ, we think, oh, I'm doing whatever I want to do. No, you're doing what your father, the devil, wants you to do. He has you duped. But here's what Christ says. Whom the son sets free, he is free indeed. When the father enlightens me through the word of Christ and draws me, I understand that I need his son as my savior because my sins must be atoned for. I must have a righteousness that is not mine and the death that is required for my guilt and trespass are laid upon the perfect one and the robe of the righteousness of the perfect one is what enswathes me in the presence of the Father. This is the will of the Father for those who are his own. And the word of Jesus, the word of Christ, overwhelms me with the desire to do his will. Thank God. And I know that it's from the Father, it's from heaven. Finally, his word compels me to understand what righteousness really is and also what it is not. It is not in any way found in me. If at the day of reward... You know, Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says, there's one foundation that you lay and that's Christ Jesus. And then there are one of two paths for the believer. He wastes his life and it's wood, hay and stubble. And at the judgment seat of Christ, the piercing flaming eyes of the Savior burn the wood and the hay and stubble away. But you still stand there in the, on the foundation. Saved yet by fire, says the, uh, the apostle. But then there are those who build on it gold, silver, precious stones. And when fire hits those, hits those things, it only makes it shine more brightly. It burns away anything that doesn't belong there. So I come to understand that there is no good thing in me. And this is the teaching that Jesus is giving now for the rest of his ministry. His word compels me to understand true righteousness and it is not found in me. The one speaking from himself seeks his own glory. I can speak now after nearly 50 years of being a pastor. I can look back in those times and I can immediately recognize those seasoned saints who never sought the highest office, who never wanted to receive accolades, 
but wanted rather to simply serve humbly in the way Christ had gifted them and humbly just fit in. And I'm also reminded of those braggarts, those who pushed their way around and wanted the best in their minds, whatever, whatever church office is the best, I don't know which one is the best. Wanted to be recognized, to be given award, certificate, whatever. The one speaking from himself seeks his own glory. Christ contrasts himself with the other rabbis of the day. However, the one seeking the glory of the one having sent him, he is true and unrighteousness is not in him. Has not Moses given to you the law and no one of you keeps the law? Now here's the great divide at this point at this feast. The great divide is, remember back in John 6, the, the mass of his disciples, masses just begin to leave him. Man, I can't handle that teaching. Christ said to the 12, will you also leave me? And they said, no, you have the words of life. To whom will we go? There is no other place to go. Now, the multitudes are divided about Jesus, especially about his claims of who he is. And the doctrine of salvation. The one, the, the one seeking the glory of the one having sent him, he is true. Unrighteousness is not in him. Moses gave you the law. No one keeps the law. And Jesus knew this, omniscient. That the crowds are seeking to kill him and not many weeks hence they will call for his crucifixion. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? Jesus, you're wrong. You have a demon. Now, the, we can go back to Matthew and we can see that what the Pharisees were doing and the scribes, they were trying to spoil the people against Jesus by saying, yes, Jesus does powerful things, but he can only do that in one of two ways. He can do it really from God or he can do it by Beelzebub. He can do it by the devil. And he's the devil. He's, he's, he's empowered by the devil. So they're following up on that. The crowd says, you have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work and you all marvel. Now that, that goes back to the healing of the man on the Sabbath. This is what stirred them up to heal a man on the Sabbath. Remember the guy by the pool? Because of the fact that Moses has given you circumcision and then Christ wants them to understand the correction here. Not that it is of Moses, but of the fathers. To identify those of the covenant, Yahweh said to Moses, 
on the eighth day, circumcise your male children. Genesis, what, 17? So this thing didn't come from Moses. It came as a tradition from the fathers. And so, and then later in the Levitical code, it says you have to do this, you have to circumcise on the eighth day. And if it just so happens that the eighth day is on a Sabbath, you got to do it anyway because circumcision preempts whatever else you may think about the Sabbath. So you can rip a man's flesh off of him, even if it's the Sabbath. You can do that. Christ is referencing. You also circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses might not be broken, are you angry with me? Because I made a man whole on the Sabbath, I didn't rip anything off of him. I put him back together. I made him a whole man. When he left my hands, he was not less in his flesh than what he was when he came. He was whole. Then Christ says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge the righteous judgment. Judge. Krinete. From krino, which means to separate. Christ is saying, look at yourselves. Be reasonable. Separate the truth from tradition. If you'll just think about yourself, you will know that even though you claim to have obeyed the law of Moses, you are sinners. You continue to sin, and yet you declare that obeying the law of Moses has saved you. Separate these thoughts. Judge the righteous judgment. Is there any righteousness in you at all? How many times do you have to sin to be a sinner? Christ is offering himself for all of it. They cannot lay those claims against Christ. And even the Roman guard at the cross of Christ will declare truly, this is the son of God. Everything that he said he was, he is. He died for me. The power of his word has enlightened me to who I am and to who he is. It has, the power of his word has drawn me. The father through that word has drawn me to his dear son, that I might have this savior, that I might have this salvation, this righteousness. And then finally I'm compelled to see what righteousness really is and it is not me in any way, it is Christ. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes Jesus Christ is the Son of God.
And he came into this world to save sinners. I always tell people you have three needs today. Your first need is to be saved. Salvation can come to you only through the will of God. If you're here today and your desire is to be saved, then as you exit this service, we have deacons and their wives waiting in the rooms just across the hall to answer your questions and to pray with you. You can come to Christ, of course. Today, Maybe you're here, you've been saved, but you've been enlightened to the truth of the Great Commission that you need to be baptized. Oh, it's a great testimony. You stop in, let the deacons pray with you and help you with that. Maybe you're here and you're needing a, a church home. The deacons are ready to pray with you about that and Take care of all of the details if you want to come and be a part of the Shiloh family. So that's how we handle our invitation. As you exit, step in and let them pray with you. Let the Lord have his way. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, would you stand all over this room?